Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. In mid-July 2022, nearly 200 people gathered in Boston for the 6th National Working Waterfront Network Conference. Working waterfronts are those spaces where people who make their living on the sea can access the water. Working waterfronts include ports, harbors, piers, wharves, launch ramps, mudflats, boatyards, and so much more. They're important not just to Maine's economy, but to the livelihood of millions of people around the United States coastlines who work on the nation's waterways. The National Working Waterfront Network meets every two to three years to swap stories and strategies for strengthening and protecting waterfront infrastructure and working access to the coast. Our Coastal Conversations production assistant for today's show, Olivia Jolly, attended the National Working Waterfront Conference with me back in July and interviewed participants who are especially concerned with the role of working waterfronts in supporting the commercial fishing and aquaculture industries. So, on today's show, we feature some of Olivia's interviews, including voices from Maine and also Louisiana, Oregon, and California. First, we kick off our show with a very special address. At the 2022 National Working Waterfront Conference, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree of Maine's 1st Congressional District gave an address where she highlighted the importance of keeping the spotlight on these complex and critical spaces for our national economy and also for our local coastal culture. So, to get our show started today, here is Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, a longtime supporter and author of legislation to preserve the nation's working waterfronts, speaking at the National Working Waterfront Network Conference hosted by Urban Harbors Institute at UMass Boston this past July 2022. Let me talk a little bit about Maine and um, the work that we're doing. Um, you probably all know this, but some people are surprised to know that Maine has more coastline than California. Unfortunately, what's even more surprising, um, of our 3,300 mile coastline, working waterfronts make up just 20 miles. And to us, our coast is not only beautiful, but it's very important. It's important to our state's history and who we are, to our environment, critical to our economy, and to really all Maine people and the visitors who come to our state. About 30,000 Mainers make their living from marine-related industries, and that's pretty significant in a state of only 1.3 million people. 
You already heard, I live on an island off the coast of Maine. So that's 12 miles off the coast of Maine. We um, have three ferries a day that are run by the Maine State Ferry Service. So uh, no bridge, no easy access, um, and a long tradition of waterfront-based industries. Uh, it's, as you heard, in the middle of Penobscot Bay. Penobscot Bay probably has the largest lobster landings in the world, um, and particularly on the offshore islands. Um, and I'm not a newcomer. I wasn't born in Maine, but I've lived on this island for over 40, over 50 years. Um, and it has really shaped my view of the world, my view of life. And let's just face it, during my time in Congress and uh, previous to that, eight years in the state legislature, um, you cannot escape the concerns and issues that people around you face. And particularly if you live in a fishing community, fishermen spend a lot of time on the water. They're extremely well-versed in understanding what's going on on the waterfront and in the ocean, and they don't mind sharing their opinions. So my whole life has been based on understanding the challenges that people around me face, whether it's in my community or up and down the coast of Maine. Now, also about 90 miles away is my Portland district office. And we just happen to have the most beautiful uh, district office um, of anyone in Congress because we are located on a critically important part of the working waterfront in Portland. Sometimes our working waterfront goes unnoticed by the visitors who come to Maine or even the residents of Maine who might be just searching for a restaurant, deciding where they might like to live on the water, going shopping. But from my office window, um, we can see boats who are fishing the Gulf of Maine tie up at the docks right below us where they resupply with fuel and ice, sometimes unload their catch. There are open spaces around the building there where people mend their nets, have access to unwind and lay out their lines for inspection and repair. We're very close to the Portland Fish Exchange, which is an underutilized fish auction, but also we're near to other fish processing facilities. And of course, we're around some major repair shipyards, some of them that can accommodate some of the largest boats of New England um, and all up and down our coast. We are a state of boatyards, marinas that, um, boatyards that build and maintain everything from historic wooden boats to modern composites um, that are uh, electrifying and um, moving at high speeds. I'm sure I don't have to talk to any of you about climate change, but just to go over it and the impact to all of us in a state like Maine, we're just a good example of a state that would not be the same without our working waterfronts and we are very, very vulnerable right now. It really doesn't take much development to swallow up the very small percentage of working waterfront that we already have that we have. Um, but at the same time, our waterfront industries are increasingly threatened by climate change. Um, 2021 was the warmest year on record for the Gulf of Maine, shattering our previous high of 2012. And that year triggered green crab invasions, starvation of puffin chicks due to a lack of their primary feed. If you watch the puffin cam, you saw this agonizing um, occurrence. Um, and of course, an early lobster shed that year, which uh, creates great concern to the lobster fishermen. Maine will likely see the sea level rise between 1.1 and 1.8 feet by 2050 causing regular flooding of Maine's coast and possible saltwater contamination of groundwater aquifers. Also damage to coastal beaches, dunes, salt marshes, and bluffs because they'll experience increased erosion, landward movement, and land loss. Ocean, acidif ocean acidification, a huge concern. 
Uh, ocean acidity levels have already risen 30% and will continue rising alongside growing greenhouse gas levels. Ocean acidification has already impacted some aquaculture operations in Maine with some of the harvesters developing techniques to mitigate this issue, including adding acid relief chemicals to sites to grow shellfish. <clears throat> and I don't want to leave out the lakes. Recurring blooms of, of harmful blue-green algae in Maine lakes are expected to become frequent, I should say more frequent, as temperatures warm, and they have a huge impact on human, animal, and ecosystem health. When fishermen already have to grapple with the loss of wharves, processing facilities, and other essential infrastructure, in addition to navigating the challenge of climate change, this uh, is catastrophic in challenging times like this, and it threatens the very survival of our coastal communities, which isn't just my coastal community, but coastal communities throughout our coast and really around our country. But you all know this, that's why we're here today and why so many of you have devoted your time to this. And I'm greatly appreciated, appreciative of that. I know that there are people in the room from all over the United States and you represent business owners, researchers, fishermen, state leaders. And it is important that we are all working together to share our ideas and solutions to protecting our working waterfronts. And I just wanna talk a little bit from a congressional perspective about what I've been working on and what we've been able to do. As you heard, my bipartisan bill, the Keeping America Working Waterfront Act, um, is designed to protect and improve working waterfronts by creating a working waterfronts grant program, as well as a working waterfronts preservation loan fund through the Department of Congress. So our goal is to have two funding options for working waterfront preservation and improvement projects. And it includes things like purchases of working waterfront properties, which is very important, improvements and maintenance to waterfront infrastructure, such as wharves or docks, which need to be maintained to make sure that we can use that working waterfront, expansion of critical dockside facilities, such as bait freezers, ice houses, seafood processing and auction facilities, and parking for those who work on the waterfront. So I'm very pleased that in February, the House passed the United States Innovation and Competition Act of 2021, also known as America Competes Act. And it included my America's Waterfronts Working Act as an amendment. So we're looking forward to moving forward on that. Another bill that you already heard about that I introduced, which is bipartisan and also bicameral. So it's um, there in the House and in the Senate. Um, that's the Ocean Regional Opportunity and Innovation Act. Now, we, we now talk about um, the blue economy. And so in our blue economy in Maine, that's our lobster fisheries and other fisheries critically important to our state, aquaculture, life sciences, boat building, clean energy, tourism, and countless other waterfront businesses are part of the blue economy in Maine. The U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis estimates that the blue economy accounted for $361 billion of the U.S. gross domestic product in 2020, and we see it as something that's growing. Um, our goal is to preserve and enhance the well-being of our coastal communities. And to do that, we have to support the very kind of partnerships which we're all talking about between the public and the private sector, as well as including nonprofit organizations and the things that we know as ocean clusters that are critical for ensuring the blue economy and that it fulfills its social, ecological, and economic goals. In my opinion, this is a critically important time for the federal government to make a strategic investment in our blue economy. 
And this bill requires that through the establishment of, a reg of regional ocean innovation clusters across the United States. I think those are critical to help us realize the full potential. Um, doing this bill and supporting it, I think in the long run will strengthen coastal communities in the blue economy of the United States uh, throughout the country and provide much more support to technological research and development, job training, and cross-sector partnerships. Now, in my opinion, we have not done enough yet in Congress, but some things have been moving forward. Um, last fall, when Congress passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which was a historic infrastructure bill trying to make our nation more resilient to the increasingly effects of climate change, um, one of the things that we did that was relevant for, the, for our topic today is investing $17 billion in port infrastructure. So this money, which is already uh, approved by Congress out there um, getting spent as we speak, it's going to address things like repair and maintenance backlogs, reducing congestion and emissions near ports and airports, and it will help to drive electrification and other low carbon technologies, which again, I think is very important. As you've heard, I've always been committed to fighting climate change. Um, it goes back to my college degree from College of the Atlantic and human ecology. And so I've, I've understood that this was not something we could turn away from and that we had to have voices speaking up for that. And I'm very fortunate that now I am the chair of the subcommittee um, on interior environment and related industry agencies um, of appropriations. So frankly, that's just the committee where we fund a lot of things related to everything from the topics we're talking about today um, to a broad range of other concerns. But we've done our best to use that committee um, to make investments to fight the climate crisis and invest in our coastal communities. Some of that are for um, programs that support coastal resilience, help communities to deal with issues like the already um, rising sea level or other ocean events that are taking place. And one, um, one thing that we included in our project funding this year um, in the 2023 bill, which we've just uh, finished um, this week, um, we've secured about $10 million in community project funding for a new innovation and education wing at the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Scientists, Sciences. Um, and that is really important to help foster innovation by funding projects um, that will serve students and scientists across the state of Maine and around the world who are innovating in the working waterfronts realm. So we're just uh, making sure that they're staying um, around in our state and actively uh, continuing to do the research and important gathering important information that we need. So let me just say I'm I'm very grateful, as I said, to all of you for taking this uh, time this week um, to getting together to help us move forward on this. Um, you represent a very important and critical mass of people um, who we need to do the work that we do. Um, and from my perspective and from the years that I've spent in Congress, we do not have enough people who are involved with oceans. If you go back to historical times, you know, the 1800s, for instance, where I live on the island of North Haven, um, in the 1800s, islands and coastal communities were really the main source of activity. Um, things moved through the water. Uh, where I live today, the island of North Haven in 1860, the census listed 79 farms. You don't think of islands as being agricultural communities, but we were. And one of the reasons that we were was because if you had your agricultural product down at the steamship wharf at 6 p.m., 
it would be in Boston, right? Right there with all of you at 6 a.m. So that means for my community, um, we could ship uh, dairy products, strawberries, uh, North Haven lamb was listed on the menu at the wrist. I mean, it was a common thing in Maine to have our islands and coastal communities um, where the economic engines were and where the drivers were. And of course, fishing, uh, boat building, all those things went on. But as time has passed and um, agriculture has been dispersed around the country, people have less of a focus um, on the coasts um, in terms of our economic activity and the understanding of what we do. It's become a shrinking number of members of Congress who care about fishing industries, who understand the important role that the ocean plays in climate change, um, who really understand the important economic issues relating to the coast, and certainly who understand preserving working waterfront. People feel, oh, coast, that's where I go on a vacation. They should develop more condos, or I want another waterfront restaurant uh, to visit. But we all know um, we are losing all too fast the critical opportunities to have working waterfronts. And from the perspective of a state like Maine, they are such an integral part of our communities, our local economies, the reasons people come to Maine, live in Maine, and we need them to be resilient and able to fight, fight climate change. And these um, concerns that we have about the future are uh, dangerous, catastrophic, and it's long past time that we made the investments and had the understanding that we need to have. So I'm just going to say it's an honor to work with all of you. I really appreciate the incredible work that you're all doing in places um, far and wide around this country. I can't, I can't do the work that I'm lucky enough to do in Congress without people and organizations like all of you to support it, to educate people, and to remind them um, that progress has been too slow. We need to change, and we need to do it now. So thank you very much for allowing me to join you today. I'm happy to answer any questions I know the answers to. Um, and look forward to continuing to work with you in the future. That was Congresswoman Shelley Pingree of Maine's 1st Congressional District in a July 2022 address at the National Working Waterfront Network Conference in Boston. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Congresswoman Pingree finished up her remarks just now, thanking the folks around the country who are working on behalf of the nation's working waterfronts. The rest of our show today is dedicated to bringing you some of those voices. You'll hear perspectives about working waterfronts and the industries they support, especially commercial fishing and aquaculture, in Maine, Louisiana, Oregon, and California. All of the interviews featured in the rest of today's show were recorded by our Coastal Conversations production assistant, Olivia Jolly, at the National Working Waterfront Conference in Boston. So, of course, the show was pre-recorded and we won't be taking any calls. Just to note that in a few of those these interviews, there are some background conference noises, um, but hopefully you can bear with it. Thanks. So, first up is Afton Vigu from the Maine Aquaculture Association, sharing some perspectives from our own home state of Maine. So, I grew up in Tenants Harbor, Maine. It's a small, very rural uh, fishing village. Uh, predominantly lobster is the, is the species that drives our coastal economy there. Um, and over time, I've seen a lot of things change. A lot of things have stayed the same. Um, it's a very very um, tight-knit community and um, 
over the years, you know, we've we've had a pretty regular population of, su of summer residents and seasonal residents coming to, to our area. Um, but um, one thing I've noticed over time is the opportunities for young people have been lacking and um, you know, my personal interest in getting involved with the Working Waterfront in Maine is trying to figure out ways to make it a little more welcoming um, and create more opportunities on the Working Waterfront, not only for people who grow up in these coastal communities, but also for people who would like to make a living on the water and move to Maine and start a commercial business. So um, that's why, really why I got interested in aquaculture, because I think it's one of those tools we can use to diversify the working waterfront and to create opportunities and build a more resilient future for our for our coastal economy. Yeah, and so what brought you, was there a particular thing that caught your eye about coming to the conference? So this is my first time attending the Working Waterfront Conference. Um, I was interested in attending just to see what it was all about, um, meeting some new people, kind of hearing from folks in other areas and other coasts. Um, West Coast and Gulf Coast specifically about what their challenges are. Um, I know we, we face a very set of a set of very specific challenges in Maine, but I know um, there are other communities out there in the U.S. That, that face similar challenges, and I'm interested in collaborating with them and kind of sharing ideas on how we can we can advance our, our working waterfronts and make them stronger and um, you know build a more resilient future for them essentially. Was there anything you've heard today that was like particularly interesting or that you didn't really think about before? Well, one thing that was mentioned um, at the opening like plenary session this morning, which I thought was really interesting, was a woman from uh, Louisiana Sea Grant. She had mentioned that, obviously, I think we're all well aware that the, the workforce on the working waterfront is aging. They call it the graying of the fleet. I think the average age of a commercial fisherman is about 55 to 60 years old. Um, and she, uh, she made a really interesting point about how kids who grew up in the 90s, like myself, um, who grew up in commercial fishing families, were encouraged to go to college um, and were, not were kind of steered away from the fisheries. and, and guided towards getting a formal education, not relying on fishing as a, as a way of life. And because of that, because we've pushed college so heavily onto our youth, we have a, a diminishing workforce and an aging workforce. And so that's a really big challenge for Maine, I think, is how are we going to fill those, those positions um, and how are we going to, you know, fill the, the needs um, not only for commercial fisheries, but also for aquaculture. If everyone who's grown up in these areas has been convinced to go to college and like get formal education and then leave the state and find better work elsewhere or find um, opportunities elsewhere that align with a college education, not necessarily um, working on the water, which is really more of a trade skill. Um, and so I, I just thought it was interesting that she brought it up because that was definitely my experience growing up. Um, we were, my family um, encouraged my brother and I to, to pursue um, education and not, not to get into fishing. And uh, I just thought that was a really interesting observation. I hadn't really thought about it before, but you can, you can see how decisions and trends that were made 20, 30 years ago have now impacted like the current um, status of the fishery and where it's headed. So I think it, it's just very, um, it, it's just very telling to hear that and to think, huh, okay, decisions we make today 30 years from now are going to have really big consequences. So we really need to be careful about um, 
the decisions that we make and, and, the, and the planning that's done um, and what kind of coast we want Maine to be. Like if we want it to become, you know, mansions and high rises, then that's one direction we can go in. Um, but if we want something else where we actually have jobs and sustainable seafood production and communities that are unique and, and you know, preserving our kind of our heritage, but also innovating and moving forward, um, then then that's a conscious decision we have to make. And, and we have to take steps to actually do that um, and not just hope that it happens. So. That's really why I'm, why I'm interested in all this stuff, and I find it just fascinating, and um, so many great connections at this conference for sure. Yeah, would you mind giving a like short summary of your presentation that I just had the joy of listening to because it was amazing. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, I so I came to the conference this year to present um, with my colleague Jacqueline Robidoux from Maine Sea Grant. Um, we presented on the Maine Oyster Trail, which has been around for a number of years, but was recently revamped last summer. And essentially, what the trail is is a tourism tool designed to drive visitors to Maine oyster farms to um, purchase oysters directly from farmers, as well as visiting our incredible raw bars and taking tours of oyster farms with um, charter businesses and kayak operators as well. So we have a whole host of diverse activities for everyone on the trail. Um, we got 87 businesses listed on there currently, and um, the website, MainOysterTrail.com, has a whole interactive trip planner where you can curate your experience uh, provides all the right contact information so you can um, book and arrange pickup and tours with businesses. And we have a fun um, digital passport so you can track all your visits and redeem your check-ins that you earn along the trail via the passport for free prizes and swag. So um, we send people koozies and stickers and hats that have Main Oyster Trail branding on them um, for checking in and visiting the businesses on the trail because ultimately we want to drive not only sales um, for oyster farms but we want to kind of cultivate direct relationships between consumers, both local folks and folks coming to Maine for the summer, um, with their local oyster farmers and, and really um, get out on the farm, learn about oyster farming, learn about, learn about aquaculture and seafood in Maine, and get on the working waterfront and make that part of their summer experience. Um, and not just sit on the beach and go to restaurants, but really to kind of um, live like the locals live, you know, experience what Maine's working waterfront is and um, and kind of be educated on that and have a fantastic, very authentic, unique experience that you just won't get anywhere else. I mean, I grew up in a working waterfront family, so to me, I think of the coast of Maine as a working landscape. I don't think of it tip typically as, um, you know, high-rises, condos, hotels, because uh, where I grew up is a very rural area, and we still don't have a lot of that today, development anyway. Um, but we do have a lot of development pressure for pri privately owned docks, um, private mansions, um, you know, and I think we have a lot of, on the coast of Maine anyway, just competing interests in terms of, um, obviously it's a shared resource, so, you know, the oceans, it's always going to be, there's always going to be lots of different stakeholders involved in, in determining different uses of areas. Um, but the coast is changing, and to me, it's really important just to just to preserve, protect, um, and build resilient working waterfronts. Not just not just keeping what we have and, and preserving it, but looking to the future and trying to figure out, you know, what what is going to be 
um, what's going to be what's the market going to be like in 20 years um, what are the populations of our wild species going to look like in 20 years it's very difficult to predict um, but to me diversity is the most important factor when you're talking about resilience uh, and when you think about Maine's commercial fisheries, uh, they at one point were very diverse. We had a lot of different species that we were fishing for. Um, a lot of those have gone into decline, and we're, we're very focused on lobster at this point in time, which is um, great. We, ha- we have a really sustainable lobster fishery, but we are really overly reliant on it. And so I would really like to see the coast of Maine become more diverse in terms of the species that are landed there, both wild and farmed species. I'd like to see us um, become a little less reliant on tourism as well because uh, where I grew up there really just aren't any jobs for young people besides working in hospitality or fishing. So um, it's ironic because I just we just built a tourism tool to get people to you know visit oyster farms but I think that strikes a nice balance because it, it creates it fills a need um, of, of this authentic main experience that people are looking for without compromising um, the good jobs, the uh, community benefits of having local businesses operating, taking care of the bay, being stewards of the ocean. So solutions like that, I think, are going to be huge moving forward. Um, We have to think about how to integrate all these different uses. And it's really complicated and difficult, but um, the only way forward is together, someone said earlier today. So I think that really encompasses the theme of the conference. And um, you know, trying to find creative solutions to, to bridge gaps and you know, not have any, any one use dominate all over the others, if that makes sense. That was Afton Vigu of the Maine Aquaculture Association. Next up, we move down the eastern seaboard's working waterfronts and land in the Gulf Coast of Louisiana for a short conversation with Dominique Siebert from Louisiana Sea Grant. She's sharing perspectives here about the challenges facing Louisiana's fishing industry. Apologies ahead of time, as there is a little wind noise in this clip. Here is Dominique speaking with Olivia Jolly. So the type of fisheries that we have in Louisiana, our main fisheries are shrimp. We have an offshore and inshore fleet, crab, oysters, which include wild caught as well as aquaculture and uh, fin fisheries. Sweet. What kind of fin fish, if you don't mind me asking? Reef fish, a predominantly snapper, some amberjack, some tuna. How would you describe the workforce around your working waterfront? Is it like a lively bunch? They are passionate. That's, I feel like that's the best way to describe them, is that they're very passionate about what they do. A lot of our fishermen is a generational industry, so they did it, their grandfather did it, their great-grandfather did it. When they, they first arrived in Louisiana, that's what they started doing, and that's what they're still doing today. Are there a lot of new people entering the fisheries? Or? We do have an issue with new people entering the fisheries. We're experiencing a phenomenon called aging of the fleet. It's not limited to Louisiana. It's really nationwide where our average age of our fishermen is increasing because we aren't having as many young people entering the industry. Could you articulate any of the like speculated causes of that change? So I think one of the causes is, you know, we did see a big push in 
90s, 2000s, even now, just to go straight to college after high school and, you know, go to high school, go to college, get a degree, and that's how you make a career, make money. And we're seeing a, a big gap in other industries like trade schools, our truck drivers, our plumbers, our electricians, and our commercial fishermen. We don't have anyone coming into those industries. I think because it's sort of a, a lack of knowledge that these industries exist, that this could be a potential career path. Even though we have so many residents that live to in or near or around our coast, the people that have been on a boat or the people that even know fishermen exist is getting less and less each year. I need to jump in here for a sec because the wind noise in this next section of the recording makes it hard to hear. Dominique had started talking about coastal housing issues and how skyrocketing insurance costs due to increasing hurricanes have become another barrier to people entering the fishing industry. Just bear with the wind noise for a minute. It gets better in about 10 seconds. However, we do experience hurricanes, sometimes devastating hurricanes every year. just a community it's a culture for them it's a heritage for them and they're being forced to make a decision if they can still live there or not because they just can't afford the insurance and we don't have a lot of new people coming in because if you are purchasing a house and you have a mortgage you have to have homeowners insurance if you can't afford the homeowners insurance and what's the point what brought you to this conference in particular or like is there anything you're hoping to get out of being here in kind of this collaboration? It's really to meet with other programs and other people who are working in these industries to see what they're doing in their waterfronts and in their states and their communities because you know everyone's a little different and everyone can have ideas that could be transferable to your area and it's a great way to collaborate, get new ideas, what may work for them could work for us, what works for us may work for them. And attending conferences like that really does open up the exchange of ideas and really provides us with a lot more opportunities to sort of think outside of the box. I think it's important for Louisiana waterfronts is to preserve the culture and heritage because so much of that is Louisiana culture and heritage. And we had, you know, we have different settlements over time and it's it can be pretty diverse and I feel like we do ex we do experience a lot of land loss pretty rapidly and we're already fighting that battle trying to preserve homes and historic sites that are literally sinking and so as much as that we can pervert preserve people's culture to them and it's so much more than just going fishing it's it's their their way of life yeah I mean we hope we like to think that we can have all the answers but we don't <laughs> we hope we can somehow 
make a positive impact, a positive change that will be beneficial to those working on the waterfront in those communities. Yeah. That was Dominique Siebert from Louisiana Sea Grant. And before Dominique, you were hearing from Afton Vigu of the Maine Aquaculture Association. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Our show today features voices from Maine and the nation's working waterfronts, as recorded at the July 2022 National Working Waterfront Network Conference, hosted by the Urban Harbors Institute at UMass Boston. Interviews were pre-recorded by Olivia Jolly, our radio production assistant, for this episode of Coastal Conversations, and we're not taking any calls today. Next up, we head out west for a pair of conversations featuring perspectives from Oregon and California's working waterfronts and a bit of insights from the commercial fisheries of the Pacific. Here first is a very short snippet of a conversation with Jamie Doyle from Oregon Sea Grant. So in Oregon on the coast, there are several um, key fishing ports, Astoria, Newport, and Coos Bay, Charleston. The waterfront is heavily fishing related as far as the working waterfront goes. There is some shipping and some other activity, but it's mostly um, mostly fishing. The coast has a very low population, and it's hour, hour and a half plus to I-5, which is where most of the people live. So the challenge for the fishing industry around local seafood is getting the product from coast to the people or getting the people to want to come to the coast to get the product. And so there's in Oregon, that's one of our challenges is connecting the seafood with the people. And what kind of fisheries um, happen in Oregon? What are y'all catching? So Dungeness crab is our largest fishery. That's a winter fishery. Um, we catch pink shrimp, albacore tuna, salmon, a whole variety of ground fish, rockfish, um, what else, halibut. Sablefish is really important, which is black cod. Sablefish is a very oily, different type of texture fish from a consumption standpoint. Um, you should try it. It's very good. And um, would you mind talking a little bit about, like, the history of custom canning in Oregon? Sure. So um, fishermen will bring their caught, mostly tuna, um, into a canner that will either put it into cans or into a retort pouch, and they will get their label on it, and then the fishermen will, like, their custom label, and then they direct market it or sell it however they've got their own distribution channels for it's an old history in Oregon people have been doing it for a long time this custom canning that was Jamie Doyle from Oregon Sea Grant in that very short snippet I wish we had more time with Jamie well with all of these folks but I was especially fascinated by Jamie's description of the Oregon canning industry providing small-scale branded batches of seafood For us here in Maine, our canning heritage is legendary, especially sardines, but also clams and lobster and other species. Unfortunately, after decades of decline in the Maine canning industry, I'm pretty sure we only have one business involved in canning seafood anymore, Bar Harbor Foods operating out of Whiting. Finally, our last, and in this case, much longer story on today's show is from Southern California, where we take a deeper dive into the commercial fisheries and working waterfronts of Santa Barbara, California. 
Michael Nelson is a volunteer with the Santa Barbara commercial fishing industry, including traveling to the National Working Waterfront Conference so he can learn about strategies to bring back home to support his own local commercial fishing industry. Here's Michael Nelson from the Working Waterfronts of Santa Barbara, California, as interviewed by Olivia Jolly in her last and slightly longer interview of this series. So what's the Working Waterfront like in your area? The Working Waterfront in our area is probably uh, one of the most important economic assets that the city of Santa Barbara uh, has at its disposal. Uh, it comprises a historic uh, working pier um, that is, I think is the largest uh, wooden pier in the state of California. Uh, has a harbor uh, that has 1,100 slips, so it's the center of recreational boating, commercial fishing. It really is a pretty exciting port. Um, and since we're sitting here at a working waterfront conference, I thought it'd be important to recognize that in 2020, despite its small size, Santa Barbara was the leading port in dockside sales of seafood. And we're really quite proud of that. And so obviously, the reason I'm at a conference like this is how can we optimize um, this, this important natural resource? Uh, we have uh, in front of Santa Barbara on the coast is, are the Channel Islands, which arguably uh, should be our brand. Uh, we have probably one of the most diverse aquatic environments, you know, certainly in North America. So what kind of fisheries are going on? Uh, the key fisheries, the big dollar fisheries, are spiny lobster um, uh, and sea urchins. Uh, those are the, 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 so the, the showboats, if you will. Uh, but um, halibut is also strong. We have a number of fin fish provides, rockfish, halibut, um, flounder. Um, angel shark uh, and it's all it's all about the natural resource that we have and it's the Channel Islands and the China, Channel Islands is this confluence of wonderful biological and oceanographic um, activity that creates this wonderful fishery and um, I'm happy to say that our fishermen are sustainable fishermen sometimes fishermen get a bad rap, um, but I think it's, it's pretty safe to say that California uh, has worked hard to make sure that commercial fisheries are sustainable. Yeah, and since this is, it's not necessarily like a specifically Maine audience, mm -hmm. but I would love if you would describe what a spiny lobster looks like. In well, a spiny lobster has no claws. <laughs> It's that simple, and they call, I don't know what they call them in New England, but they call them bugs um, in, in Santa Barbara and, in the, and on, the cent, on the central coast. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's not unlike, well, it's in, one of the interesting things about that is not just the spiny lobster, it's the urchin uh, divers, uh, because one of the, the uh, sad stories is abalone was 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 king and queen uh, in California for a long time, and it was it was divers 
divers, 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 they went for abalone. And all of a sudden, the abalone was overfished and, and closed uh, in, in California. And so what happened was, pointing out the resilience of fishermen, um, is those divers suddenly became divers for urchins. So it just kind of went full circle. So, And the other thing, you mentioned the, um, the our fishermen have to do more, many, many of our fishermen have to do more than just one species. They can't just focus on spiny lobster or just focus on um, halibut. They've got to go with the seasons and what's hot. So that's the key is one, you have the species diversity that can support an economy where a fisherman can work year-round and move between species as markets and environment changes. Are there like particular seasons for spiny lobster? Yeah, lobster, lobster runs basically uh, from late summer to March. Okay. Challenge now is you have in a place like Santa Barbara, um, the, the waterfront is an attraction. I mean, Tourism and hospitality obviously are the critical, you know, economic drivers um, uh, for the city. But at the same time, there is that working waterfront, and what's happening is that working waterfront uh, has has started to erode. So now it's very important to have that balance that allows not only the traditional industries to continue to thrive, but at the same time, you know, be, be, attracted, be attracted to tourism. And fortunately, uh, commercial fishing is one of those things. There's a logical nexus between that. And if you go to the Santa Barbara port, the city's been very great in providing uh, working infrastructure, uh, a nice house, hoist, an entire pier for the offloading. Well, that offloading, even though it's the center of our commercial operation, uh, is the tourist attraction. I mean, it is, people want to see what's going on. They want to see the, the fish unloaded. Um, and so as a consequence, uh, the local organization, uh, a nonprofit, uh, has a, you know, a Saturday market from six to to, uh, to, mid, to midday, and um, in some cases, it's uh, direct sales. It's an opportunity for the boats to pull into the harbor, unload their dock, and actually sell it, which is one of the amazing things about fishermen, that they don't necessarily just have to catch the fish, they actually have to, to market the fish and sell it. So. And, and from, a, from a, my perspective, my discussion with you is, how do we make sure there's shoreside infrastructure uh, one of the ways you do that is you establish, you know, strong feelings between people about, oh, really? That's what was there and that's yeah. what happened, you know? Is there, is, that, is there any of that left? Well, yeah, there is some left and there could be more. So the next time we go in to say, instead of building um, a tasting room, uh, a restaurant, uh, or something like that, we go, well, maybe this time, uh, Tasty rooms are great, but why don't we have a seafood processing facility to carry on this tradition that's now so important to me? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the key. 
uh, I, we, we've got to be able to have people you know, uh, respond uh, and help protect this, these opportunities. So, or it will disappear. Yeah. And if, and if you went up and down, speaking of old timers, they, they basically argue that Santa Barbara is one of those ports where commercial fishing can still thrive, not just survive. Uh, and that if you go up the coast, you can see what happened is, you know, more and more there are fewer spaces for commercial fishing. There are fewer ice houses. There are few of fish hoist or public fish hoist. For example, Santa Barbara has uh, fish hoist that you can, you know, coin operated and an ice house which provides ice at a very, very reasonable weight. You won't find that anywhere else. So part of us is we're just excited about the fact that, you know, uh, it's not too late. Yeah. Uh, that it's strong now, but it can even be stronger as opposed to, you know, uh, watching it die or watching it, you know, or just the status quo. As, the, as uh, someone said today, I think it was, it was the Lieutenant Governor who said, you know, Sometimes the status quo is not as good as we can be, and uh, that clearly is the case in Santa Barbara. Are there other challenges that your waterfront, in particular, is it's, it's the it's the um, it's it's financing, um, and I guess I'm hoping that you know everybody has made a big nationally the importance of dealing with eroding infrastructure. Well, part of that infrastructure is our waterfronts and our ports. And so what we're trying to do is figure out how to be you know, in line or to qualify and become eligible for infrastructure funding. Uh, because what's happened is in a case like Santa Barbara, uh, you once had five seafood processing facilities and now you have but two so you have to make certain that there is space uh, shore side space uh, for the industry well what's happened over the years is that shore side space is incredibly expensive um, and sometimes it will always exceeds the uh, sort of the financial capacity of the city uh, to address that. So we have to become a regional economic development priority and with that a state priority as opposed to just a little special project in the small you know, tourist beach town of Santa Barbara. Yeah. So that's the challenge. How do you translate a truly local objective uh, to become a state priority? But at the same time, uh, we have to keep our eye open to uh, things that, if not planned correctly, can have a significant impact uh, on that, such as what this conference is dealing with today. Uh, I'm going to leave you and go listen to, you know, uh, planning, uh, integrated planning for offshore wind. You know, is it, is it, is it myth or is it reality? And so, uh, the small port in Santa Barbara and some to the north are embracing for a, a sale of leased property, uh, which is experimental in nature, but its impact could be significant 
hardcore, you know, fishermen in the central coast of California. So again, this sort of conference uh, is a place where somebody like me can come uh, and, and learn a lot about what other communities are doing, um, in this case on, on the Atlantic and in New England. That was Michael Nelson from Santa Barbara, California on today's Coastal Conversations. We've been featuring voices from around the nation's working waterfronts as captured at the July 2022 National Working Waterfront Network Conference in Boston. There are many kinds of working waterfronts, large and small, throughout the nation, and our focus today was on commercial fishing and aquaculture. The types of seafood businesses may vary around the nation, but all of these industries have one thing in common. They all rely on access to the water to get to work and, at the end of the day, to land their catch. The status of their waterfront access and the infrastructure itself make a great deal of difference to the success of their industries. But it's not just the waterfront that affects these industries. They're also impacted by many external factors, as our guests have talked about today. Everything from competition for space on the water with other industries like tourism, affordable housing, financing, distance from markets, and climate change and the impact of increased storms, not just on the actual infrastructure, though that is, of course, important, but on land values and insurance rates. All of these factors impact working waterfronts, a topic that we like to return to regularly on Coastal Conversations. We'll wind down our show here today by giving you a quick recap of who you heard from. At the top of the hour, we started with a keynote address from our very own Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, a longtime working waterfront supporter from Maine's 1st Congressional District and author of legislation to preserve the nation's working waterfronts. Congresswoman Pingree, whose home is on North Haven, shared her perspectives from Capitol Hill and also connected for us the importance of paying attention to the impact of climate change on the nation's waterfront infrastructure. In addition to Congresswoman Pingree, thanks to all of our conference interviewees for sharing your working waterfront stories, vignettes from your maritime history, and perspectives about the challenges facing the aquaculture and commercial fishing industries around the nation. Today's voices included Afton Vigu from the Maine Aquaculture Association, Dominique Siebert from Louisiana Sea Grant, Jamie Doyle from Oregon Sea Grant, and Michael Nelson from Santa Barbara, California. Thanks today also to our radio production assistant, Olivia Jolly, who traveled to the conference and captured today's interviews. Finally, thanks to the National Working Waterfront Network and to local event sponsor, Urban Harbors Institute at UMass Boston, for a great conference and for allowing us to record these voices for WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. 
Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. Thank you.